0: Welcome to Politics in Question, the podcast where we look at how our political institutions are failing us and what to do to fix them. I'm Julia Azari. I'm a professor of political science at Marquette University.
1: And I'm James Walner. I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. So hey, Julia,
2: I have a question for you. Uh, Did you watch the State of the Union address? I did. Why do we have a State of the Union address? What's what's the deal with that?
0: Okay, so great question, Lee. Why do we have a State oh, of the Union you. address? Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, so we start with the Constitution, which calls for the president to address Congress from time to time on the State of the Union and recommend some ideas. Um, this evolved pretty quickly. In the early republic into a written address one reason for that is uh so thomas jefferson was one to take it to the written address format one of the reasons given for that was actually that Jefferson was not a great public speaker. Um, he much preferred to kind of deal with people one-on-one, and he, he would deliver the State of the Union in, in writing, which is another format that he did well in. I don't
1: remember and- that from Hamilton, Julia. Sorry to interrupt. I just, from, <laughs> you know, I think in Hamilton, he seemed like a pretty boisterous and outgoing individual. So maybe we should just check your facts.
0: Maybe one thing that I've learned is that it's always better if you can hire a professional actor to play you. You come off much uh, more outgoing and better
2: and with like a good hip hop beat and you know, some rhymes. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's when when, when they do politics in question the musical, we're all going to sound smarter.
0: Exactly. I've got a list of people I want to play me. So uh, yeah, so it was like that for more than 100 years. And then Woodrow Wilson started giving them in person. They started they went on TV in the 40s. And then the rebuttal format came out in the sixties. So that's kind of the, the technological story of the State of the Union. I would actually argue that there were some important State of the Union, they weren't called State of the Union, they were called annual message to Congress, but important kind of annual messages to Congress before they were delivered, they were still kind of an important way for presidents to assert agenda setting power and kind of tell their parties what direction things were going. And if people are interested, In a kind of deeper dive on that, I have sort of soft launched a new substack. Uh, It's just my name, Julia Azari, and I wrote a piece that uh, talks a little bit about the advantages the State of the Union gives the president and and does kind of a deep dive into the 19th century, uh, some of these written messages.
2: That's uh, hot, hot stuff that uh, 19th century history, uh, subscribe, subscribe. So I, I confess I didn't watch it. Um, you know, it, it, it uh, it's like, it's like nine o'clock. I got to get to bed. Uh, Cause man, my kids are going to get up. And also it's way too late. Yeah. Way too late. Way too late. Like, like, I, but I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'd watch it. If it was like 3 PM. I mean, it's just all, all I care about is like, like, you know, what's, what's the five minute highlights that I need to know. Right. Like, like, you know, like, what are the takeaways? There's a lot of stuff that just goes into the into the vacuum. But like, what 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 is going to set the agenda? Like, what are people going to be talking about? So, isn't that that's what the speeches are all about, right there, about agenda setting? So, I just want to know what the what the agenda is. Like, is it is it about a uh, crazy person marjorie taylor green is or is it about how biden's doing this clever jujitsu uh with the the maga folks or like that this is going to be how biden's going to run in 24 and and uh what's up with all the ufos anyway
1: james you didn't watch it you ever watch it well i mean i i i did watch it i, I watched the state of the union this year and i think it, there's a lot of value there and there's a lot of uh you know there's there's a lot of uh, importance associated with it. And there's a lot of things that aren't important. And the only way to figure that out is to actually, I guess, watch it. You know, maybe, you know, that's, I guess, politics in general. I, I just want to know what other people think about it. Because that's all
2: politics is, is just figuring out what other people are saying, right?
1: Right. I mean, I, I, I agree. I think it is way too late. It's too late for viewers. It's too late for, you know, the audience there in person. It's too late for the president who gives the speech. I mean, just imagine having to give a speech of that magnitude at that time. Right. Right. Or imagine sitting through a speech of that. Imagine getting dressed, putting on a suit and tie, or whatever you have to wear, and you go to work and you sit down and you listen to a very long speech at you know nine o'clock at night. It's a very it's it's hard.
2: Yeah, I'd fall asleep. I mean, I, I feel sympathy for like every
1: now and then, like there's somebody caught on camera falling asleep. Uh, it, but setting aside the you know, I'll we'll come back to the agenda setting stuff, and I'm interested to see what Julia thinks. But I think more broadly. I've always found the pomp and pageantry uh, surrounding the, the State of the Union to be very inconsistent with, or at least the modern State of the Union, the contemporary State of the Union, to be very inconsistent with the way our politics should operate in practice. It ultimately, is we have a separation of powers system and the president is not the prime policymaker. The president isn't even a policymaker. The president can't introduce bills in Congress, for instance. The president needs uh, the Congress to, to do that for him or her. Now, obviously the president can influence that process and we all know through various ways, going back to FDR, if not before, how presidents do that. And they have played a greater role. But the fact that Congress looks to the president Whether or not that's happening in in practice to set the agenda, I think, in theory, is completely inconsistent with our our separation of powers system.
2: Right. I mean, we're not Brazil where the president has decree power and legislative proposal power, right? This is America. Julia, are we in America?
0: Yeah, sure. We're America, which is where we have separate institutions sharing power. And in practice, I mean, okay, we can we can have a like you know, 1848 vision of the presidency all we want, but the the presidency is involved in the policy process. And so one of the things that I typically have liked about the State of the Union has been that you do kind of get to see the president interacting with Congress and you see this sort of like back and forth of who's clapping and who's, you know, who is brought whom. And you do sort of see both like Partisan disagreement that's important in a healthy democracy, but then also kind of like some of the ways that the president reaches across the aisle. And in theory, you also should be able to see some of those kind of institutional points of disagreement, right, where where there's clearly a different function between the president and members of Congress. And what I kind of see is that the presidency has kind of evolved in this very national figure way, and we still have the format of the kind of 20th century TV presidency but the party system has changed a lot and so it's not just like oh there's some policy disagreements or even some personal disagreements but there's this very vigorous disagreement over the basic nature of reality and that's kind of what we saw I thought on Tuesday was the sort of clashing between what the partisan system actually looks like and what we've sort of come to expect from the televised presidency and i thought i mean i thought that was interesting um i thought that biden took a particular tactic a particular partisan tactic which was to to emphasize issues that either have bipartisan support like i guess junk fees um are a thing we're doing now in politics or to try and emphasize areas where his party is pretty unified and the republicans are divided so i think that's true on the issue of guns to a large degree i think that's true um, clearly on on questions of medicare and social security and these really popular programs um, so i thought that was you know that biden made some use of that speech i wrote in my piece that the two main things the president can really do with the state of the union are things that don't particularly serve biden's political needs at the time and one was i wrote this before the speech one was um urgency the president can kind of bring an issue to the forefront and that we don't really need that. Like everyone feels urgent about everything right now. And the other was to make an issue sort of more nationalized, which is a, a, a huge advantage of a presidential message or a presidential speech back in the day, but not, not so much now that everything's already nationalized. But I think I had not considered the way that Biden could sort of set up an agenda around these, the, these sort of party fissures around issues to sort of bring the issues to the forefront that are beneficial for Democrats and less so for Republicans. And I do think that there is a a media agenda setting piece. And there is a theory of kind of Biden's public approval that suggests that when things started to go wrong for Biden in August or so of 2021, that that was largely a story of media coverage. And that if his fortunes turned a little bit in media coverage, that could make some difference. And we haven't really seen that so far. But certainly this was, I think, the most positive media reception I can remember of a State of the Union speech. And I think that at least bears some observation.
2: So I want to make a suggestion on how we can improve this, because I think you're getting at a point that there's like this partisan dynamic and you kind of get a sense of that and who applauds for what. But like... Why don't we just have like some debates between party leaders? Why does Biden get to own the agenda? Maybe we should have Biden and Kevin McCarthy debate. I would like to see that. That would be more entertaining. I mean, the British they have this very adversarial system in which the in which there's a, a real back and forth. Here we have this. You know, president who gives this long prepared speech and w- would be a lot more entertaining. And and uh, I, I think, frankly, revelatory if we could see some like real high level debate on the priorities and the, the back and forth of the kind that we don't really have, because even Congress is just not real engaging in debate. It's just performative talking points. The only time we have any real debate is like every four years when we have these presidential debates, which are not even real debates. Like maybe we should have just these real
1: debates. I think though, Leah, it's a great point. But again, that's what politics should be overall. And the State of the Union can be a part of that. Right.
2: It should be that overall. But but the I mean, the State of the Union can set the terms for that.
1: Right. But it's, we, we tend to lose our minds when it comes to the State of the Union. I'm trying to take, I'm thinking about your suggestion, and I'm trying to kind of put it into practice in my mind with the way in which we cover State of the Unions today with all of the pomp, the pageantry, and everything. For instance, one of the things that jumped out at me in the State of the Union was how much Biden sounded like Trump on policy, like childcare, right? Buy American provisions, drug reimportation, a whole host of things. Even his less stiff, less formal, more kind of jovial type uh, demeanor in interactions was very Trump-esque, and yet it was completely missing. I didn't hear that in any of the coverage. Maybe there was coverage out there where people mentioned this, but it seems oh, to I,
2: I I read some of that. Yeah, uh,
1: But it seems to me that if this isn't something, if we can't, if the way in which we kind of come at the State of the Union with all of our baggage, we, we, it's almost like we want to be ruled in this one moment. We want our monarch to walk in wearing the big, you know, you know, the long robe and the, and the crown and everything and tell us what the state of our union is, what is going to happen to us, what policies we are going to be governed by or ruled by. And again, that's not the way it works. And, you know, I don't. Of course we need leaders. I mean, a leader is a very different concept than someone who makes decisions and rules uh, for you, right? I mean, it's a very different concept. And we have representatives that we elect to send to places like Congress precisely to adjudicate our concerns and to make laws and to hash things out and to eventually compromise. The whole notion Of politics and a democratic self-government where you have persuasion and compromise is something that is almost alien to the the setup of the executive branch. It's almost alien to the setup of of a one unitary official who gives this speech from on high and we all applaud or not. And then the question becomes, who do we have debate the president, right? Maybe we got to go back to Edmund Randolph and say we need more than one president now. Maybe if Biden and, and and Trump were president at the same time, then they could have a debate. But then we're just watching presidential debates.
2: We're getting somewhere. So so maybe maybe abolish the presidency, okay. uh, pure <laughs> parliamentary great. system, or cabinet, or rotating presidency
1: like Switzerland. Uh, I mean, but again, fine. I mean, and I'm going to turn this to Julia. But the problem isn't that the system doesn't work. The problem is that we're not using the system to do what it should do. Fine. Okay.
0: We can certainly debate about whether we should have a presidency. And there's a obviously there's a strong uh, kind of lar- line of argumentation about how the the president is the presidency is destabilizing primarily because of the kind of having everything invested in one person and the partisanship intrinsic in the role. But that's where if you believe those things, right? If you or if you believe that the you know the presidency is like a zero sum kind of thing when you have a fractured political system that, you know, the presidency is too big a prize to be enjoyed by one person, then Okay, if you buy these premises, then the State of the Union should actually be a little bit of a fix. It's not a a huge fix, um, but it actually addresses those problems. It requires the president to go before Congress and engage broadly with with the other branch, to go before the American people and not tell them how they're going to be ruled, but put forth a set of proposals for them to debate. It also forces the president to confront, again, not just members of the other party, but also members of his own party who have... By constitutional design, different constituencies who represent different kinds of people and the president might represent and to and have different sort of institutional prerogative um, to try and, you know, try and and build something that can build a, a broad base of support and whether or not our system can do that. I think is not entirely about the president, right? It's not entirely about whether we have a presidency or whether we have a state of the union. I think that's about aspects of our system, about can we all <laughs> come to some, um, some shared understanding of what reality is and what the problems are, much less a solution. And I think that, again, a presidency can be a focal point for nationalization and for partisan disagreement, but can also be a force for kind of bringing at least their their own party together. So I think we're kind of not only we're we throwing the baby out with the bathwater, we're also like not seeing some of the good things about the bathwater. I'm not sure I'm not sure that this is a great metaphor.
2: So now we're debating the we've gone from talking about the state of the union to talking about the role of the president, whether we should even have a presidential system. I I actually have been reading a bit of the comparative literature on presidentialism and have come to see actually that there's a real value in having one president who's elected to represent the whole country. But I I do think having read the literature that, that presidents are mostly destabilizing When they have way too much power, which is like the Brazilian presidency and the system is, party system is way too fragmented, which is also Brazil. I think that my takeaway from the comparative literature is that presidents with moderate multi-partyism seems to work pretty well the kind of premier president or semi-presidentialism seems to actually be a pretty decent system so maybe what we need is a is a premier but but I do one thing that I that I've taken away from reading that literature is that an advantage of of a presidential system is that voters can vote for one thing for president and another thing for congress which is kind of what Americans did from like 1969 to 1992 they voted for uh, a president based on foreign policy to 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 a large extent and a congress based on domestic policy and uh, I was getting at this before but one thing i noticed uh, about biden's speech is that he didn't really talk about foreign policy whereas foreign policy is i think the area where the presidency has the strongest agenda setting policy so I, I i do kind of think that maybe we should ideally conceive of the president more in the foreign policy space and Congress more in the domestic policy space as a kind of reasonable division of labor. Obviously, that's not how we think of it, but I do think that would probably lead to a more sustainable version of US politics, whereas what we have now is clearly destructive and dysfunctional, or
1: maybe not clearly, but in my mind is clearly. Well, but Lee, real quick, I don't think it's a question of do we get rid of the presidency or not? And I agree. Julia made some excellent points about the role and the value of the State of the Union. I think what I find interesting about the State of the Union and my objections to the kind of the current practice isn't so much the actual thing, the State of the Union. It's more that it it highlights how the the kind of the disconnect between the way we think about our politics, which is very much not as a presidential type system with an independent congress that is coordinate and is actually has more power than the president in lawmaking and a separate executive but we think about it more in terms of a parliamentary system even though it's not that Uh, and if you watch the coverage of the state of the union if you watch how we react to that state of the union and you watch how we think about it and the questions we ask ourselves i think it does highlight that disconnect and that disconnect to me is the true source of our dysfunction right i mean i think that's it and if if we want to know does the president set the agenda well you know yes and no but the president can influence what congress does congress can ignore the president and i think the bigger question is why doesn't congress do things why isn't congress acting on the things that the president is raising is it or if the president doesn't raise these things do do they not get resolved either i mean it almost puts Congress, I guess a better way to articulate this, it puts Congress into a secondary subservient position as if we're waiting for someone to walk through those doors and tell us what's on the agenda so that they can then get to work. And I know that's not the way it works in reality, but that's the, that's the kind of, that's almost like the expectation you get from watching this thing from afar.
2: Well, right. We do have a presidential system that's behaving like a parliamentary system But I mean, that's the point I was making, that maybe what would work better is if the president was focused on a different set of issues than Congress. Uh, And maybe the Senate should be focused on a different set of issues than the House.
1: But shouldn't they all be focused on the same issues? I mean, isn't that the way that we prevent a tyranny from emerging? Division of labor. Not a division of labor. We want want people to argue and come together and, and hash things out and have different views and different constituencies and different institutional interests. Well, that's within the institutions. Like, there's plenty of
2: diversity of perspective within the institutions, but I'm just posing a different vision of of governance. I'm in an exploratory mode today about how how we might do things differently. Oh, that was the the idea of the podcast it's, it's, these are ideas i've been thinking about like why do we have why do we have multiple institutions dealing with the same problem shouldn't we have different institutions that each represent a different i mean congress the house represents a diversity of perspectives the senate represents a diversity of perspectives the executive branch is more uni- unitary but even there there's a diversity of of perspectives in the cabinet
1: we want more cooks in the kitchen Right. More cooks in the kitchen. Isn't that the lesson from Federalist? No, 47? I don't want more cooks in the kitchen. Have you ever, pe- the soup is gross. Let's,
2: you know, let's empower a few chefs to make some, some, some decisions. And then if we don't like that restaurant, we, you know, go to a different restaurant. Well,
0: I mean, I think, so I'm becoming really cynical about this institution point because, well, obviously the institutional structure shapes, you know, who's powerful. It seems to me like what we actually have is a situation in which you have a lot of very well-organized and powerful interests who are able to find whatever the access point is, they're going to find it. And so maybe it's blocking legislation through the Senate where it's very easy to block legislation. Maybe it's writing the bill in either chamber. Maybe it's it's informing the rulemaking process in the executive branch. But like from the policy perspective, it seems to me like there is a real kind of lack of sense of ability to solve with national legislation many of the problems that people are facing. And also maybe a sense that some of the legislation that's coming down doesn't really reflect the best interests of the people. So I don't I mean I don't know that any of that is gonna change that. But once again I think that this speech is in some ways is sort of like a nod to all of these elements that that are potentially useful and so it's a it's a good kind of jumping off point for a lot of that. And I think I mean James is not wrong. It does in some ways put Congress in this reactive position, but Congress can take it or leave it. They can they can go in a different legislative direction. They can not do what the president proposes, which has generally been the approach, especially under divided government. I think the Biden specific trajectory is super interesting because Biden is not a great speaker. This is not his greatest venue. And last year, I mean, I don't really remember the State of the Union. I don't really remember the one before that, which isn't technically a State of the Union, but whatever. Um, and nevertheless, it was actually a pretty productive legislative session. And I think that Biden and other Democratic leaders were pretty good at coming up with plans that would bring together a lot of their coalition, including even at the very end, the Inflation Reduction Act. And so like, you kind of saw that outside of the speech context, but we're coming up on an election and the speech context takes on different importance. And Biden is in more of a defensive position because of not just because of the upcoming election, but because he, um, his party lost the majority in the house in the midterms. And you did kind of see, I think again, kind of a productive use of that where Biden really looks, he looks like a average boring politician guy when he is, when he's on his own, when he's, up against Marjorie Taylor Greene, then he looks, you know, really sensible. And so playing up that contrast was really valuable for valuable for him and I think kind of reminded the American people what the choice is. So, I'm just in favor of kind of more of these public displays rather than fewer. I agree with James that we have to sort of use them. And I don't know I don't know that I have a strong feeling about this division of labor reform proposal. It's an interesting idea for sure. Now I'm just thinking about gross soup, so that's really that's really my contribution to that.
2: yeah, and, and Julia, the same way that that uh, James and I squabbling make you seem more sensible. That's the plan. that's the plan of the podcast.
1: Don't reveal mm, it. no, you revealed it. Can we talk about the heckling before we we finish up here today?
0: I mean, yeah, we gotta talk about the heckling. I heard a lot of people say that that they thought it was great, and they you know, want to see more interactive
1: <laughs> speeches like that. And maybe that's the debate that Lee was talking about. Right. right, it's it's a little bit more
2: lively. I mean, maybe it's not heckling, but like a little bit of back and forth. Like that's why people keep coming back for this podcast, right? Because there's a little bit of back and forth. I mean, no, nobody would want to listen to a podcast that's just me speaking for like you know seventy minutes, would they?
0: We're all just silent. I mean, those <laughs> podcasts do exist, whereas it's is one person speaking for 70 minutes. But I I admit, unless the person's really interesting, I don't listen right, to them. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's always my reaction when I have to give a lecture and I can't just like ask my students to do a little bit of call and response. I'm like, I can't do this on my own, you guys. So no, I mean, I can see that. I can also see that that's my reaction to that is it's very hard to structure. I think that was a spontaneous moment, and I don't know how you would build that in institutionally.
2: I don't know either, but like, isn't this sort of like from a, you know, this is a bit more philosophical, but how we sort of figure out what we agree and disagree on is through this constant process of, Of deliberation. And I mean, I do think that if we're, I mean, it's one thing for the president to write a note and, you know, here's the update, here's the shareholder, here's the annual democracy shareholders report. But as a sort of like, like if this is what our democracy is supposed to look like, and to James' point, it does have this kind of like president gets up there, gives a laundry list of proposals, most of them vanish. Is that what it is? Or is it like we're going to do a hour long program every Wednesday night, that is a debate among leaders of Congress and maybe somebody from the White House on a, on a set of policies. That would be more
1: interesting, and particularly if the rules were just a little bit more free-flowing. Free I mean, technically, that's what, I mean, again, like that's every day of the week. We should be, that's, we have a place for that. But, but instead of instead of having our p- political leaders do that,
2: we have our, our pundits do that, and that's this crossfire thing.
1: Well, let me tell you, the heckling thing is really interesting to me and kind of using our discussion as far as it segues very nicely with it, I think, because the reaction to the heckling was over the top. It was like, oh, my God, somebody heckled the president. The republic's going to end. Can you believe it? And this, I think, illustrates. Now, let me just go on the record and say, I don't I would not heckle if I were in the audience. I do not think that heckling is necessarily a sign of like a very kind of ennobled character, for instance. But is it the end of the world? Absolutely not. And it highlights our reaction to Marjorie Taylor Greene or anyone else for that matter. Our reaction to that highlights that we have the president on one level and then we have these other lawmakers on a completely different level that they're almost like, how dare you? How dare you say something to the the king when he wasn't asking you what you thought. And then we add to that the fact that Biden started the speech, and I thought this was a very entertaining speech. He started the speech by by almost inviting the audience into it, by adopting a more conversational tone, and by poking at the audience. And so in my experience, and we saw this with Trump when he would get into arguments with people like Bob Corker and others, and people would say, can you believe what Donald Trump is saying about Bob Corker? I'm like, well, did you see what Bob Corker said about Donald Trump. It's almost as if like we don't see both sides of the situation here. And in reality, you know, the president was heckling the Marjorie Taylor Greene. Marjorie Taylor Greene stood up and heckled the president right back. That's not the end of the world. In fact, our republic has has survived a lot worse than that. And it's History. Uh, So I think that we don't need to hyperventilate about it. I'm not saying that's what you, uh, you guys are doing by any means. And then I also think the heckling is interesting because it invites more people in. It's something unique, it's something new. I mean, after all, how often can you watch these things? It's like watching paint dry sometimes. But all of a sudden, if something new and unexpected and contested happens, if somebody stands up like Joe Wilson and says, You're a liar, first of all, Maybe maybe the president's not telling the truth. Maybe the president is telling the truth. The place where we are going to hash that out is technically in politics, in the, way or in the place where we come to a shared understanding of reality involving the polity, not involving science or morals or all these other realms, but involving the polity is in the political process. And if the president comes to the floor of the House of Representatives, stands up and gives a speech and uses that occasion to kind of poke at its members, then, you know, I would fully expect those members to poke back, wouldn't you? All right, well, the presidential
2: poker. I think you heard it here first. Our State of the Union addresses should be more combative, more entertaining,
1: more of a free-for-all. I think so, that and don't give a response. I mean, that's the only other thing I could think of.
2: Julia, you wanna take us home? Will there still be State of the Union addresses in 20 years?
1: Probably. There's
0: been State of the Union addresses the whole time, or messages, or maybe they'll go back to a written message, but there's been either written or verbal yearly state of the union the constitution doesn't exactly say that either of those things has to happen it can there can be multiple states of the union uh nixon gave multiple speeches um and submitted multiple written messages on different issues which kind of speaks to lee's point so you know maybe maybe it'll evolve over time but it seems like it's more the bigger question is is it becoming increasingly irrelevant and are kind of scripted exchanges becoming increasingly irrelevant and again i think it's going to be really hard to capture that that authenticity and spontaneity that people crave in this particular format i think you just you can't have it both ways either it can be the president laying out an agenda for public consideration and for congress's consideration in this kind of like transparent way and constitutional way or we can have a spontaneous exchange of ideas among all different actors but it's not going to be able to be
2: both well darn i want everything all at once now and forever but politics is about trade-offs and politics in question is about figuring out those trade-offs so we leave you there folks another episode of politics in question Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Elizabeth Lucero, and our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly.
1: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.